Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, If you weren't here with us last week, I just wanted to quickly say we did the first part of a two-part Eric Metaxas lecture. We're going to be playing the second part today. Uh, Go back and listen to that first episode. It really is awesome. You are going to be glad that you went back and listened to it. So that was just released last Monday. Go check that out. Before that, we had a couple interviews with Lad Allen, uh, the creator of Illustra Media. That was one of the most fun interviews I've ever done. It It was really cool, so check that out. Um, But today we're going to be getting into the second part of that Metaxas lecture, and it just gets better and better. He just, first of all, he's hilarious, but second of all, he's like an encyclopedia, and he's very good at taking things and breaking them down in a way that any of us can understand. Um, So he's going to be getting into some really, really, really meaty stuff. And one of those things, and probably the thing that stood out most to me in this second part of the lecture, is that... If you are an atheist, you cannot be consistent with the way that you live, with the way that you talk, and with the way that you think. You cannot just go ahead and say, well, everything uh, you know, evolved randomly, there was no purpose and no process, and then on the other hand say, well, yeah, we have meaning and we have purpose. Both of those things cannot be true. Either we are stardust fizzing, we're accidents in a universe that did not have us in mind and will not have us in mind, or... You were created in the image of God with immense purpose in being, and that is why things matter. That is why you have meaning to your life. That is why if I were to insult you or steal from you or so on and so forth, uh, offend you in any way, we would know that that's wrong because we have value, we have worth, and that worth is only possible because it's given to us by God. Now, I'll let Eric Metaxas do the rest because he does an amazing job at this, so check it out. Here's Eric Metaxas in the second part of our lecture. And if you don't know that an intelligent creator created this, you're playing head games. You're playing games. You just don't like it. But we now know this. And so I remember when, when James Stewart said to me, I said this to me, I thought, how come I, I, I don't read about this in books of apologetics? Nobody seems to deal with this. And this is the most outrageous evidence for God and the failure of science to, to, to give us answers to basic questions. Because, again, what could be more basic than life? How did it get here? Like, that's about the most fundamental scientific question there could be. I thought, why does nobody write about this? And Jim Jim Tour, why haven't you written a book about this? Well, you know, he's one of these guys, he's writing like a a peer-reviewed article every weekend, roughly. And so he doesn't have time to write, you know, silly books that people would read, you know? He's a real scientist. So I said, I think I have time to write silly books like that. I think I need to put this in a book. But then I met another guy in Albuquerque, which I always sound, say sounds a little bit like a Johnny Cash song, but it, it happened. I met a man in Albuquerque just to watch him die. Uh, and the guy that I met in Albuquerque, I spoke at a church, Skip Heitzig's church, he said, you gotta meet a friend of mine, Stephen Collins. He's a biblical archeologist. He discovered biblical Sodom. I said, what? You know, I read a lot of stuff. I've never heard of the discovery of biblical Sodom. Biblical Sodom. You know, we're not talking about 
you know, something from 600 BC. We're talking about something from the, the mists of almost prehistory, 1700 BC, Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're telling me somebody discovered this? What are you talking about? It sounds like you're blowing smoke. It sounds like people talk about, you know, yeah, we figured out what the Garden of Eden is. I'll, I'll show you. <laughs> or Noah's Ark, right? I mean, I'm open to these things, but it, it, it's a high bar to convince me that, like, this is, re this is real. This is not just some theory, right? Well, I met the guy in Albuquerque, and, and, and he wrote, he did write a book on it. It's quite a good book. And it's nothing less than astonishing. You're talking about something that happened in the first couple of pages of the Bible, right? It, it, it just seems mythic. It seems impossible that modern science and archaeology could ever determine whether this really was Sodom or Gomorrah. But the short version is basically that he was down uh, in, uh, in the southern part of near the Dead Sea, where biblical scholars often said Sodom and Gomorrah were around here someplace. And he said, well, that doesn't make sense because the scripture, which I know to be the word of God, the infallible word of God, says that these five, these towns of the plain are north of the Dead Sea, the Kikar Plain, south of uh, the Sea of Galilee. He said, they, they couldn't be down here. If they exist, they're up there. Long story short, he finds uh, a site on the Jordan side of the Jordan River, right, which for 30 plus years was difficult to do anything over there. And... Um, he says, this seems like this tall, you know, or tell, whatever they call it, basically a, a mound of cities upon cities upon cities for thousands of years, you know, as they uh, uh, rise up, accrue. Um, basically, he says, I think this might be it. So he begins excavating there, and when they get down to the 1700 BC level, they find a layer of soot. Uh, that's about five feet deep. Um, and a very, very strange um, mixture of, of things within the soot. He says it, 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 nothing could account for this. In other words, no fire, no earthquake. It was really a bizarre thing. And scientists, secular scientists examined this, right? And they found teeny, tiny bits of melted brick. Have you ever tried to melt a brick? I'd like you to try because it's not easy. You're talking about temperatures that are really crazy. A normal fire, or you, you can't, you know. And so scientists looked into this. And it wasn't until literally six months ago in Nature, which is one of the premier peer-reviewed journals of science, that they wrote a very long, complex, scientific article, 21 scientists from every discipline who've been examining this stuff for years. And they basically say the only thing that it could account for what happened in 1700 BC on this spot is what they call a cosmic airburst event. In other words, sort of some of you are familiar with what happened in Tunguska, Siberia in 1908, a meteor about 180 feet in diameter, so not very big, right? Not much bigger than this room probably, about the size of this room, comes into our atmosphere at about 35,000 miles an hour, okay, they measured it with a speed gun, and I know, I just want to make sure you're listening, 35,000 miles an hour, about that size, it explodes about five miles above the surface of the earth, this happened in Siberia in 1908, and it had the force of about 1,000 Hiroshima bombs. 
Now they know this, okay? The scientists who examined this spot, 1700 BC, they say, that's exactly, we know, that's exactly what happened here in 1700 BC. The heat would have been just astronomical. It would have melted everything, including brick and, and the, I mean, this is science, folks. This is not like, you know, some Christian story. This is what the scientists said, okay? So even the scientists in this article in Nature, okay, refer to Sodom and Gomorrah because there's no way to avoid the similarity to the description from the scripture. So they, they talk about this. And there's no doubt about it when you look into it. You can just read that chapter in my book. There's no doubt based on all these details that he, he flat out discovered Sodom. It's real. It happened in 1700 BC. What I find chilling is at the archaeological level just above 1700 BC, for seven centuries, okay, because imagine there's civilization upon civilization upon civilization. This is like the most prime real estate imaginable in that part of the world. There's water, it has military advantages. So that city was there for thousands of years, literally thousands of years before 1700 BC. So we're talking as ancient the cities as, as they get, okay? And then suddenly in 1700 BC, there's this five-foot layer of ash. And then for seven centuries, there's absolutely zero human civilization there. So why wouldn't people have zipped right back? It's like, hey, it's a buyer's market. <laughs> they got wiped out. You know, we can profit from that. Think about it. Nobody wants to live there. I'm not afraid. We'll build. We'll build. Nobody settled there for 700 years because it was a place of horror. I mean, all through scripture, whenever they mention Sodom, it's sort of like frightening, a haunted place, a place where God judged. So for seven, anyway, the bottom line is that these two stories, I thought nobody, I've never heard these two stories, the Jim Tor story and then the story of, uh, and I thought, this is outrageous evidence for the historicity of the Bible, that it's not a bunch of folk tales, even as far back as Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and I thought, I need to, to, to take this information and get it out there so that everybody knows that this information, you know, while you've been sleeping, the evidence for God has been piling up. And while you, you have bought into the lie to some extent that, ah, who's to say, and, the evidence has been piling up. It, it's like going to sleep, you know, in 1966, and, and, and during the night, it starts to snow. And you wake up in the morning, and you think, what, what happened? And, and the snow has piled up and up and up and up silently so that you can barely open your door. I know I'm in Florida, but go with it, okay? Because this can happen. It does snow in other parts of the country. So, to me, the news is not just this evidence for God and for the Bible and so on and so forth. The, the bigger news is the fact that we didn't get the memo. We don't know this. Why don't we know this? Well, because we live in a secular culture, so secular that even we have drunk the, the Kool-Aid to some extent, right? And it, it really reminds me, I mean, there's two pieces to it, right? That we, we say we believe, right? But the question is, how much do you believe? Do you really believe? You believe in every part of your life? Or is it just something that you kind of have like a little religious carve out? On Sunday morning, I go to that building and I believe in some stuff, but you know, I still sleep around, you know. There's a couple of people that just avoided my eyes, just you know. We're gonna, unfortunately, we're gonna have to take you to the brow of a cliff and cast you off after the evening is over. Um, 
But I'm saying, do you really believe what the Bible says? Do you really live it? And, and as I understood this stuff, I thought to myself, we've all bought into some of these secular lies a little bit. Even those of us who say we're, we're believers, like we're kind of hedging our bets. And it reminds me of when I came to faith when I was 25. It was kind of like, you know, you, I had this born-again experience, and you think, so I've been living in a culture all this time where we, we act as though what I now know to be true, to be the central truth of the universe, Jesus is Lord, the Bible is true, all of that stuff. I've been living in a world where that's not true. And now I know it's true, but I still live in a world where most people act as though it's not true. Most people act as though, well, it's your truth or, you know, it, but I'm here to tell you folks that what you say is true is true. And the evidence for it, God in his mercy has increased and increased and increased and increased to the point where if you're not bold about what you believe, you're part of the problem. You know who you are. <laughs> we need to know that the Bible really is the word of God. It's not a nice idea. It's not just inspired. Like, it's God's word, and it's true. And God, in his mercy, we don't know what, we don't know why God does things the way he does. Why he would allow science to lead us to believe that maybe it's not true. And then, as science progresses, you're like, whoops, it looks like it is true. And, and now we're living in a world where the, the evidence is outrageous. I mean, the, the most... Simple evidence from science, just so you understand what I'm saying, is what's called a fine-tuned argument. So does anybody here know what I mean by that, the fine-tuned argument? Okay, you can take a cigarette break now, go ahead. And the fine-tuned argument, Christopher Hitchens was once asked, uh, what's the best argument from the God side? Because you've had all these debates, you know, he's this arch-atheist, and he said, oh, without any question, a fine-tuned argument. Now, he was a, a, quite a nasty debater. He was really not interested in being gentle and kind and discovering the truth. He was interested in crushing anybody who dared to say there's God. But in a rare moment of candor, he slipped out and he said the fine-tuned argument. And what the fine-tuned argument is simply that the more science learns, again, this is the thesis, right? The more science learns, the more it realizes that what we didn't know 50 years ago, now science can, can see that it, it looks like everything's been perfectly fine-tuned. In other words, we now know that the size of the Earth, if it were the tiniest bit smaller, there'd be no atmosphere, there'd be no life. If it was the tiniest bit bigger, we wouldn't have the atmosphere we have, there'd be no possibility of life. That's what science knows. This is not some religious version of the truth. Science didn't know this some decades ago, but now it knows that that's true. That our planet just happens to be precisely the right size for life. And you go, well, maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe it is. But then you find another thing. You find that the moon, if the moon weren't precisely the size that it is, and when I say precisely, I mean precisely. I don't mean, you know, give or take 40%. I mean, if, if the moon weren't the size that it is, doing what it's doing, it's stabilizing the Earth's rotation to the extent that if it weren't there, there'd be no life here, period. But it gets, more, it gets more ridiculous. Everywhere we look in creation with the tools we now have from science that we didn't have 100 years ago, we see evidence of design. We now know that the planet Jupiter, okay? Jupiter is 400 million miles from Earth, okay? The, the sun is, is, is 93 million miles. This is 400 million miles away, impossibly far away. But its mass is so huge 
that its gravity pulls asteroids and meteors away from us and out of our orbit. So science now says, oh, by the way, if Jupiter weren't there, imagine, this is what science says, if Jupiter weren't there, there'd be like a thousand times as many asteroid meteor hits on Earth, and there's no chance that there'd be life here the way it is today. Okay, I mean, I mentioned the Tunguska event and the Sodom event. Imagine a 180-foot diameter meteor one, okay, is like a thousand Hir Hiroshima bombs, okay? So if those were happening every now and again, you know, life would be tough. <laughs> so, so everywhere science looks, including at, at the simple existence of Saturn, could any of you dream that science would say, oh yes, if it weren't for Saturn, you couldn't be here. So science continues to find things, and again, I'm, I'm just giving you the, the barest overview, but it has piled up over the years so that everywhere you look, I have a whole chapter in the book on water. Water, the thing that we take for granted, nobody even would dream of thinking there's anything interesting about water. It is an utterly astonishing in invention of God. It, it is so astonishing, I won't bore you, but I have to tell you, I never dreamt that I could be amazed by water and, and how life, we know life would be impossible if it weren't for water, but when you realize what water is and what an incredible creation it is, I thought this is science. This is not biblical studies. This is science. Science has made it very clear that this is, is the case. Now, but if you're a materialist, you're, you're, you're somebody who doesn't want to believe in God, and you have all this bad news, well, you've got a couple of options. You can just ignore it, which is what most people do, I think. Or if you're really confronted with it, you can come up with really preposterous theories, like have you heard of the multiverse theory? The multiverse theory is the idea that, yes, our universe is just perfectly fine-tuned, but that's not a problem, because we think maybe there's an infinity of universes and we just happen to hit the jackpot by being here. Isn't that great? It's so preposterous, you know, that, that the only real response is like a horse laugh. You, you can't take that seriously. But there are people that are so wedded to the idea of, of a life, of a world without God, that they are stretching in these crazy directions. So the evidence from science has piled up, and the big news is not that it's piled up, but that almost nobody knows about it. And so I said, I want to kind of put the greatest hits in this book so that we can know what has been going on while we've been sleeping or daydreaming in this kind of secular world that science, ironically, has been pointing to God more and more and more to the point where now it's, to be perfectly honest, it's open and shut. There's some people that won't admit that, but I'm here to tell you, believe me, it's beyond open and shut. I mean, I'd be more likely to be a flat earther than to believe there's no God, based on science. So, the other part of the book, I talk about biblical archaeology because the evidence from biblical archaeology has also just piled up. It's just crazy. But the third part of the book, I talk about atheism itself. And what I talk about, and I think oftentimes we are not on the offensive as Christians. We kind of act like, you know, well, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm just going to kind of hang back and pretend like I have some nice ideas, but I don't mean any harm, you know? Well, I think that we have done a disservice uh, when it comes to the idea of atheism, because atheism, when you understand it, is so bleak a doctrine that it's actually like a nightmare. So we kind of pretend like it's a neutral thing. Well, there's no God. 
Well, if you work it out, what does that mean? The people who have really looked at this issue, uh, I, I would say Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, two of the famous atheists of the 20th century, right? They really believe we live in a world without God. And they try to work out, well, what does that mean? How can we live if there's no God? How do we work out ethics? There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no, how, how do we live? They really tried to work it out. And, and those two men who probably looked as uh, unblinkingly in, into, the, into the horrible abyss of a world without God, both of those men, and again, nobody seems to have heard of this, but I know this, and I put it in my book, I still can't believe that this is true, but both of them, independent of each other, 20 years apart, came to faith in the God of the Bible. Who has heard that Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, came to faith? Who has heard that Albert Camus came to faith? Almost no one knows that the two men heralded, you know, they're still read in, in, in painful undergraduate courses, like this really bleak stuff. Who knew that at the end of their lives, they would see to the bottom and say, this is unworkable, this doesn't make sense. It's important for us to know that those who look at the bleak doctrine of atheism, really look at it, reject it, say this cannot be right. But if you look at it in a cavalier way, the way the quote-unquote new atheists do, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens, they're, I was really embarrassed and then ultimately angered by their shallowness and their intellectual dishonesty. And that's a really polite way of saying they're liars. They misrepresented the truth. And a lot of lives were harmed. And I think we need to call them on it and say, you have nothing. You're wrong. And you're not even willing to be honest in the debate. Because if you talk about a world without God, you talk about a world without meaning, and you talk about, well, we can create our own meaning, you know, that's like saying the check is in the mail, or, you know, hey, let me get those packages for you. They're kind of heavy. I'm going to pick them up with my mind. You know, like it, these are meaningless statements. And we need to call them on it and to say, no, 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 no. Logic, um, history, science, all point to the idea that there is a God. And we need to be honest about this. And, and I really do think that when we realize there are people risking their lives for faith in other parts of the world, and by the way, I do hope you will all write gigantic, painful checks by the end of the night to these organizations. Because, folks, we're only here for a season. This is it. We're in a war. And the lie that we've all grown up with, that there is no God, um, the proponents of that lie are, are, are fighting much harder to promote that lie in every sphere in which we live than at any time. I mean, cultural Marxism is its just atheism, okay? And, and what it effectively says is there's no God. You emerged out of the primordial soup by accident, we all got here by accident. There is no God, there is no meaning. In your life, you are not transcendent. You are not sacred. You are nothing. So you gotta create your own meaning, have a good time. But that lie is so pernicious because it says that life is not sacred. Life has no actual meaning. And it leads to every kind of horror. And we need to know what we believe so that we can combat that. And so that while we're combating it, we know that, hey, I'm not just like, you know, fighting for my team. I'm fighting for truth. And I'm fighting for you who disagree with me. The idea that there is no God is scientifically untenable. 
I mean, I actually have said this in many interviews that I, I think we have to boldly say it's over. You, you can no longer be an intellectually honest atheist. You just can't. If you have questions about the faith, that's, that's fine. We can be honest. But let's not pretend anymore that there is the slightest reason to believe there's no God. Wow. Apart from God, there is no meaning and purpose, but when we recognize that Jesus Christ is God, everything makes sense in everything that we do down to the very last thing we do or say has reason and purpose. And that is an amazing gift that God gives us. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. We'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.